It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Ryan Heath, political editor at Politico Europe, and this week's show has a big tech theme. But don't worry, you don't have to be a geek to understand any of it. We're going to dive into the ethics of social media. We're going to look at Europe's new data privacy regulation and also a dystopian view of the future where European politics is governed by a Tinder-style app. Also, on our podcast panel debate, we are going to talk about the big event in Brussels this week. That was Mark Zuckerberg's appearance at the European Parliament and how what should have been an EU thumbs up turned into an EU WTF. We also talk about a physical attack on a Greek mayor and the embellished CV of Italy's likely new prime minister. That's all in this week's edition of EU Confidential. Our first guest is Tristan Harris, who spent three years as a design ethicist at Google and has been called the closest thing Silicon Valley has to a conscience. He's the co-founder of an organization called the Center for Humane Technology, and it has a bold mission to stop technology hijacking our minds. I spoke to him about what that means for big tech, politics, and for all of us as citizens. Tristan Harris, welcome to EU Confidential. Thanks for having me. Now you've just flown in from the States, so we are going to try and get you through this jet lag wall that it must be nearing for you. And you've come to Europe at a really interesting time because we, like people in the States, are debating where the digital revolution is taking us. And some people are very worried about that. So I thought I might start with a fundamental question, which is, is there enough good in the digital revolution and in Silicon Valley that it can be fixed? Or are we facing some really fundamental existential challenges where maybe there isn't enough good in there to really get us back on the right track? Well, I think to ask the question, what's good, we have to be willing to abandon with total humility. Like, what if everything we're doing was bad? I mean, starting from the presumption that maybe nothing might be good, how do we know verifiably what good impact means? So my background, by the way, I was a design ethicist at Google. So my job, in a way, was to think about what does it mean to have a positive impact? How would you know? Um, And I think the, the key lesson is that there's a fundamental misalignment between what's best for business, which is sucking attention out of 2 billion people's brains and making it as manipulable as possible to a third party, and what's best for democracy, for truth, for society, or for mental health, public health, and well-being. That's the addiction part. And so much like climate change, where you have this one system where it's an extraction-based economy, where attention normally flows in, you know, between parents and their children, between us and each other in the real world, 
technology companies point the best persuasive weapons and AIs that they have at people's brains and say, how do I basically persuade you to spend that attention with me? And so they, it becomes this kind of race to the bottom of the brainstem to manipulate different parts of the human social animal. And that has externalities across every single domain, because what doesn't go through the infrastructure of your mind? Your mind, what people are thinking and believing, is the foundation of all human choice making, of all sense making, what's true, of all elections. And that has never been before as vulnerable and for sale to third parties. And that's the fundamental misalignment that I think the tech industry has to wake up to. And that's actually why we're here in Brussels, is that this is not going to happen alone through self-regulation. I would love for it to, to be true, but you know, every single opportunity we've had to let the companies try and solve this problem at the pace and you know, you know, urgency that they want to solve it, they have not done enough. And we are in a situation where, because this is happening at such a warp speed, to get back to your point about the data, it's almost impossible to come up with the data to measure the impact of either the innovation or how you might regulate that innovation. And so it's been a bit of a wild west scenario where anytime I've spoken to a top tech executive or also to the regulators that are trying to figure out what to do with them, they essentially have the argument, well, we haven't been regulated before. So if it's not broke, don't try and fix it. You'll never do it as well as we can do it. I'm not sure I'm convinced by that argument, but now we're also seeing that some of it is broke effectively. Right. So I guess we're heading to a situation where the Wild West days are over and we're going to see tech as a more regulated industry the same way that finance or pharma right. or other industries are. And, and that didn't kill finance. I mean, when we had an unregulated financial industry, we came up with financial industries, I mean, financial instruments, which led to a total crash and that harmed everybody. And I think we've already experienced a kind of democracy crash. We're in the middle of it right now. And yet we haven't actually seen or recognized that there's a fundamental gap between what we're doing that we need to close. And like you said, this is not a situation where we can say, let's do a study and wait 10 years and see what happens to children when they get out of this. Or let's do a study and wait 10 years and see whether people can tell the truth or believe in the truth. Like we know which direction this is heading and we have to be able to actually get ahead of it, which is why it's important, I think, for more insiders. I mean, we found this organization called the Center for Humane Technology trying to bring together the people who are on the inside. You know, Sandy Parakilas, who is the Facebook privacy manager at Facebook, has joined our team. Roger McNamee, who was Zuckerberg's personal mentor, has joined our team. And many others who actually understand the dynamics of how this stuff gets made. So from that perspective, we can offer common sense kinds of protections and regulations that are the ones you want to have. They're the kinds of playing rules that we want to be living under, not some kind of, you know, from afar, you know, out of touch uh, regulation. And is that going to have a bigger effect on those people in Silicon Valley if people they know and have trusted are sending this message to them rather than someone of a different generation in Washington or Brussels trying to hand down a stone tablet and, and getting it wrong? I mean, like we saw in the US congressional testimony that Zuckerberg gave. I wasn't myself completely convinced by his answers, but I was certainly not convinced by the questions he was being asked either. So right. there's a big question mark of that balance of knowledge and information. So if we had more industry insiders pulling the brakes and sounding this alarm bell, yeah. maybe that would work better than Congress or the EU. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a reason why we have specialized offices. I mean, the FTC is a specialized office. There used to be an office called the Office of Technology Assessment in the United States that I think was disbanded in the 70s that used to do this kind of assessment about technology specifics and had experts that are based on that field. We don't have that anymore. And given the pace that this is the fastest moving, fastest evolving sector of the economy, 
we absolutely need that expertise. And I think you can take what's happening in terms of a fundamental insight. Mark Andreessen's insight was that software is eating the world, meaning that software can do more efficiently every single industry, whether it's media, taxis with Uber, or media with Facebook, or you know all the startups that are tackling healthcare. Software will eat the world, which means that we've given the tech industry a free pass on regulation. So it's really that deregulation is eating the world. Everywhere we used to have protections, we are now letting software eat that area. And then the software was deregulated, so we just lost all the protections. A good example is election ad campaign prices. Mm-hmm. It should be the same price for a TV ad for one candidate and another at the same slot on TV. That's regulated in the United States. On Facebook, that was not regulated. So in some cases, there was like a 17 to 1 price difference for one campaign over another. How do we make sure that we reintroduce the same protections we worked so hard, the ones that we're proud of, the ones that we liked? How do we make sure we reintroduce those? We don't just abandon every kind of protection that we had. Would you go as far as the public scrutiny of algorithms, for example? I don't mean necessarily the publication of the algorithms, but some access to a regulatory body so they can see exactly what is making those decisions, whether it's on pricing or what information is presented. Well, we certainly need to have some kind of transparency. I know that Kathy Neal, Kathy Neal with algo transparency work and algorithmic auditing is some of her work. I think, you know, we have someone, Guillaume Chazelet, who is the YouTube engineer who studied the intrinsic biases of YouTube, who's working on a website called Algorithmic Transparency. We need many more tools for outside parties to know what's going on. One of the real sort of black box truths about this, the un- un- you know, not secrets, is that even the engineers at Facebook can't tell you exactly what the algorithm is doing, right? I mean, it's, it's steering 2 billion people's thoughts in languages that the engineers don't even speak, which can have resultant effects downstream in Sri Lanka or Myanmar, where you're causing a genocide, and you don't even know what the hell the algorithm's doing because you don't speak the language where it's shaping certain things to show up in the newsfeed and not others. So, you know, I think we've really unleashed Pandora's box and we need an army of people to try and figure out what's going on. And unfortunately, it puts both the major social media companies and the kinds of regulatory bodies in a real trouble because this is not a philosophical conversation. This is real-time influence on geopolitics, on mental health, on the integrity of elections and belief in truth. Mm -hmm. So this stuff has to get solved right now. And given that time pressure... What are the most time-efficient ways where we could get different decision-makers and influencers up to speed? You know, in the very long term, you can do this through education and embed it in people's brains from a young age what the social context of all of this is. But right now we're dealing with a bunch of 65-year-olds who might not even have Facebook or other online accounts. What can we do to get them to the point of understanding to do something useful about this? Well, I think this is the problem. This is one of the reasons we came to Brussels. I also think that there's a misunderstanding about what these products are. If I say, what is Facebook? You know, what is Twitter? People would say, oh, it's like a communication platform where people can post photos and catch up with their friends. That's not what Facebook is. Facebook is an AI. Facebook is a supercomputer that's basically taking and ingesting 2 billion people's private thoughts and information, listening to all of their conversations, and then using that to predict what will most make them available for advertisers. Right? It's a predictive engine. That's what they're building. And I think that that concept, I mean, what artificial intelligence is, is not something that even I think many regulators even understand, even the ones who are trained up in it. And so 
I think that we have to actually reclass what these things are. When you're reviewing the merger and acquisition sort of antitrust on WhatsApp and saying, well, should, should Facebook own WhatsApp or should Facebook own Instagram? It's like, well, Instagram is a photo sharing service. People have other ways of sharing photos. Right? It's like we're miscalculating what category. But it's all machine readable data. It's machine readable data and it's just about attention. These are attention companies and they're competing for this finite resource, which is attention. And that is the thing that unifies them and puts them in the same category. There's lots of ways to compete for attention. I think we need to see that as the universal currency behind all of us, because so long as the business model of these companies is advertising, they're in a race to get more and more aggressive and persuasive and manipulative to get that attention, which is why it feels like we're losing control and we're addicted all the time. Speaking of attention, there's a room full of people here at the European Parliament who want your attention, so I'm going to have to say goodbye. Tristan, thank you for joining us on EU Confidential. Thanks for having me. Well... May 25 is Data Protection Day in Europe. It's D-Day when the feared General Data Protection Regulation, that acronym we've all been seeing in our inboxes, GDPR, is coming into force. And joining me on the podcast is Paul Jordan, who is the Managing Director for Europe for IAPP, and that's the International Association of Privacy Professionals. So, Paul, welcome, first of all. Thank you very much. We need to get a a, a lowdown from you on what's the state of play. You literally talk to thousands of people in your organization who have to deal at a professional level with all of these privacy concerns, privacy complaints, the activism, frankly, from the EU on this topic. Now that we're really moving into the end game of this, when it becomes a reality, what are the big risks out there? Are people actually prepared? What's going to happen on May 26th? Well, that's obviously the the million dollar question. And, you know, there are varying degrees of uh, opinion on how prepared industry is uh, for the GDPR. And I think it's it's safe to say, if you look at the number of research projects and surveys that have been conducted by multiple parties, I I would say somewhere in the region of about 50% of European companies are at least almost uh, compliant with the GDPR. But there is obviously a swathe of companies that are still grappling with the regulation as a whole and are are either just starting their GDPR compliance programs or, or looking to get advice on, on how to comply with the GDPR. So I, I think it's relatively balanced. It's a robust piece of legislation. One of the underlying fundamentals of the GDPR is that privacy is a fundamental right in Europe. It's a fundamental right of citizens. And obviously with the GDPR comes new provisions in order for organizations to respect that. And I think it's fair to say that at the heart of the GDPR is consumer protection. I think that's been said by a number of regulators. It's been said by Giovanni Buttarelli as well, the European Data Protection Supervisor. It's very much about individual rights. It's about consumers and about citizens. And now you've been in Brussels yourself since 1974, I believe. You were a a young tyke back then, so I'm not trying to suggest you've been a professional since 1974. How does this rate in the sort of EU solar system as a a piece of regulation? Is it kind of uh, fully cooked and it's going to be ready to go on, on day one in terms of the EU saying stick to the letter of the law? Or is it something that is going to take a, a longer period to digest? That's a good question. I think um, clearly if you listen to the new chairwoman of the uh, Article 29 Working Party, Andrea Jelenic, she's clearly stated that there is no grace period. And I think that's been voiced by a number of regulators. Could they say otherwise? Probably not. 
it does become law effectively on the 25th of May. Mm-hmm. It's been on the table for two years. It's been passed by the European institutions two years ago. I mean, maybe people weren't thinking about it, but they did really have time, whether, whether you are the regulator or the company, there has been notice period to get together. there has been notice period and i think there's there's two things considered there's first the the implementing laws of the member states so the the member states are duly bound to uh, in- incorporate the gdpr into their national legislation i think that is obviously that can be quite a trying exercise for member states nonetheless companies have been aware and i think as with all european uh, regulation once it becomes the law of the land and that's the difference obviously between its predecessor, the directive, which you can transpose into your national law as you, as you see fit. A regulation in its simplified definition supersedes national law and therefore it will become the law of the land come the 25th of May. And uh, it brings home this idea that it's not just an issue for so-called tech companies. You it, know, anyone is, exactly. who's holding and processing data, they've it, got to think about this, whether they think of themselves as a tech company or not. Exactly. I think, I think the GDPR will impact companies in different ways. Certain provisions will not apply to all companies, such as the appointment of a DPO. That's the data protection officer, the person who's exactly. going to be the real, uh, I don't want to say point man, that's sexist, but yeah. the, the one who's the going to person. hold the can, yeah. the point person, who's going to uh, hold the can when the regulator comes knocking or a customer complains about what's going on. Exactly. I mean, the DPO is, is essentially the catalyst for, for driving compliance within the organization. And where you'll find a number of those DPOs will be lawyers. And there's no stipulation within the GDPR that says that a DPO has to be a lawyer. So you'll see an emergence of DPOs coming from different departments within organizations as well. But I think, in essence, if you look at the requirements and the, the tasks that the DPO must fulfill as provision under the GDPR, um, it will be very, very difficult to find all those skill sets in one person. So I, I think you'll start to see the emergence of DPO type offices mm-hmm. uh, within organizations, particularly the larger organizations, and depending on the, the breadth and depth of your operations internationally. Well, I've got a feeling we might be having this conversation again at a later date when we get some hot cases coming up through the court system, well, or we might, we might well maybe that. even some role models of people who've been doing it right. Uh, Paul Jordan, thank you for joining us on EU Confidential. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Now let's switch from tech fact to tech fiction although sometimes it's hard to tell the difference these days. Joining me now on the podcast to develop our theme of Brussels bubble book reviews, we had Curb Your Idealism earlier this month. Now we've got Giuseppe Boccaro, who is the author of Disco Sour. Welcome, Giuseppe. Hi, Ryan. So... I am fascinated by this book. I've been reading it through the drafting process and I've been watching it develop. And it's fascinating because you are describing European democracy and what it might look like after a continental civil war. So what happens when the digital revolution meets the fragmentation of all of our democratic institutions and a dating app gets thrown in there. And what I've noticed from recent Italian political debate is that what seemed like science fiction when I first started reading your drafts now seems a lot closer to reality to how we govern in Europe. Tell us a bit more about the book and and how you came up with all these ideas. So Disco Sour, as you say, actually it uh, it depicts an imaginary world where uh, there's been a civil war in Europe. The seed started when it was uh, back in 2014, there was not even Brexit yet. 
But indeed, you mentioned Italy. It was recent elections after the European elections. It's actually an aftermath of 2014 election uh, um, book. And the populist movements started to be on the race. I would never have imagined that writing end of 2014 Brexit would uh, have happened. So many things then developed and then things that were just in my imagination then happened to be real. You mentioned Five Star Movement. They have uh, a certain appeal for uh, online platforms, direct democracy and so on. It's definitely an inspiration about uh, this digital CAO who is trying to sell a a sort of dating app, like uh, it's sort of Tinder, but uh, for politics, which would replace elections and basically get rid of all the politicians. And that is a little bit of rhetoric that we've been listening to so much, not only in Italy, even though uh, the Italian case is perhaps one of the most visible ones, especially in, in this period. But we've been seeing a little bit everywhere, uh, Trump as well, I mean, it's a clear case, of trying to uh, put in the trash bin uh, politics as an exercise, uh, as an organized arena with parties and so on. And uh, I really wanted to explore this sort of individualization of democracy to a certain extent. And this idea that simple solutions to complex problems, sometimes they can have their own very complex consequences and you don't actually end up solving the problem you set out to solve. Exactly. That's what I call Tinder politics. What, what is Tinder politics is basically swiping right or swiping left for the kind of things that you might agree or disagree, but basically reducing complex problems on very simple and easy solutions. And that's a little bit reflected in those populist movements. And is there any hope at the end of the tunnel? Do we get to see some productive resolution for democracy in your novel, or does it end in a dystopian fashion? Well, I cannot reveal too much because otherwise it will be a spoiler. But what can I say is that uh, definitely one intention that I had was not to uh, write a book that was pointing on one direction or another direction, but something that would make us think that we can actually imagine multiple futures for democracy, we can imagine multiple futures for Europe, and that this exercise of imagination, it's a very important exercise that we should keep in mind, not only writing a a novel, but actually also when speaking to the citizens. And that's also a little bit the, let's say, more activist side of the book, what I, I like to brand it as a European activism, because it tries to bring at least a seed of the fact that you can have European narrative that is different from other narratives that are simply attached to nation states, for instance. Well, you're certainly reimagining what it is to be a member of the Brussels EU bubble. Thank you, Giuseppe, for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you very much, Ryan. That was Giuseppe Pocaro, author of the new book, Disco Sour. And now it's time to welcome the Brussels Brains Trust. Hi, Alva. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Lena. Good morning, Alva and Ryan. It is a great morning. In fact, we've got some pan au chocolat that Lena has brought in. That's the rustling you can hear as I mm. hand them out to the happy campers. Uh, we've got three 
WTF moments this week. I don't know why I'm sounding so happy. The first one is about a 75-year-old mayor of Thessaloniki who was beat up by a bunch of extreme nationalists. They literally came in and started kicking him in the head and legs at a commemoration event for people who had died during battles of World War One. What do we have to say about 70-year-olds uh, being uh, beaten up? What's, where's the value in that? That's not good, is it? I think that's the only thing you can say. Again, I think another moment in the podcast when we realised that like violent extremism from white people is very present in Europe. White on white crime. It's white or black, it's violence is violence. And the guy is 75 years old. We're so out of the track between nationalist and anti-nationalist and just a mix, you know. This is a very scary moment, especially in Greece. And I think we will be seeing it in other European countries, just nominated a new government as well. People are angry. People are being mentally, I think, abused that they just don't see. They don't remember why and how. And it's, it's a shame. Yeah, and again, this thing about it being related to, you know, the world wars. We had another piece of the podcast before we were talking about that strange case in Italy where they were glorifying basically a a Nazi camp. Yeah, I think, Lena, you are right. We need to really keep our eye on Italy now. Uh, The way the Auschwitz guards are now being harassed because they're perceived by some people as not... Uh, being generous enough to the plight of Poland in dealing with the Nazi regime. And then the solution is harass the guards at the Auschwitz Museum. Uh, Yeah, I think it's a strange, almost looking backwards, but not remembering why it was so bad in the first place, like forgetting why we memorialise these things is to show that these were really bad times in Europe. But I think, yeah, some people want (laughs) to return to some of the ideals that were floating around then and it's scary to see like even 10 years ago you would never have thought that there would just be this open display of extremism I've, I, even in Belgium for example one day walking down the street loads of violent kind of fascist groups who had come in from everywhere so I think it's a problem across Europe and it's deeply worrying Well here's a thing maybe we can pick up for the second WTF moment which is the rules have changed And I think that is something that really came through to me around Giuseppe Conte being nominated as Prime Minister of Italy. Now, it wasn't the biggest scandal in the world, but within sort of 24 hours of him being a name that people discussed as a potential leader of Italy, it also became clear that he'd inflated his CV, where he had talked about perfecting his studies at New York University, which didn't mean actually being a student or a staff member there. It meant that he had access to the library and popped in, you know, every summer for a few years to the library. Now, in a normal slash traditional political setting, that would certainly be a small scandal, if not a disqualifying factor, that someone had essentially misrepresented themselves in their search for the highest office of the land. But for populists, it seems like the rules are different. You know, it's very, Donald Trump didn't have to play by the same rules. Now it seems like Five Star and the League don't have to play by the same rules to keep their supporters and to to get those high offices. Yeah, it's super, I think that's very, it's really strange that he effectively lied and that for anybody else, this would be a problem or in any other country. But I think Italy as well has been for a long time swaying into this strange moral quagmire where they kind of just allow their politicians to do anything and and get re-elected. I mean, Berlusconi... (laughs) 
Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't. We run out of words. Do I have to? Yeah, I don't. I don't have to recall everything that Berlusconi did, illegal or not illegal. But uh, yeah, I think they they play by different rules there, and also there's very much still in Italy this sexist kind of bravado you know boys will be boys idea Um, and yeah it's definitely sad to see that someone who has really lied and been caught out can still be you know up the top and it's probably a little bit as well to do with the strained situation in, in Italy at the moment maybe it wouldn't have happened in another time when they weren't trying to like desperately form a government but yeah also people think the system is so messed up. They're thinking, well, okay, what's this? I mean, like in the grand scheme of things, what does this change? I think that the voters couldn't care less anymore about CVs or backgrounds or education. What if you have a PhD and you have an implicable CV, but you're a crappy leader and you don't <laughs> really, and you don't have any yeah. kind of popularity, you don't how's, talk the how's language. How's fixing of my it? salary at the end of the month? Like that's what people want to know. Yeah. And if he talks to the emotions and he gives a, a different discourse from, from the traditional ones, of course people wouldn't, wouldn't care. I mean, th- we're doing a big story about his CV, yeah. But if we go to every single politician and every single leader, we will find things in their CVs and their backgrounds and their houses and their relationships. And I think we just need to move on and focus on, okay, what they are going to provide. And if the people voted, it just when... In the U.S. 2016 uh, elections, I was one of the people. I hope uh, Trump will win because everyone was afraid that he wins. So now we know he's there. We know all the mess uh, has been created in the world and the chaos. So we can move on after him. We things will emerge and will develop. It cannot get worse than that. <laughs> I think. Maybe. Well, well, we'll leave that to <laughs> everyone listening to tell us. Can things get worse? Um, we haven't had a dear Politico in a while. So there you go. If you've got a problem out there that's uh, worse than what we've been discussing, send it through and we'll discuss it next week. Now, I've saved the best for last. It's a mind-boggling scenario, in my opinion. It is the appearance of Mark Zuckerberg at the European Parliament this week. What should have been a thumbs up, they got the Facebook CEO, very controversial figure at the moment. They beat out the UK Parliament. This was supposed to be the moment to get some real answers to prove that the European Parliament mattered, that MEPs were smarter than the US Congress folk who had really let the guy off lightly when he appeared at US Congress. And what we got was a bunch of windbags and not a lot of answers. Uh, First, they tried to do it behind closed doors and not let us watch. Then they let us watch. Their reason for all of that was they didn't want a spectacle and grandstanding, and that's exactly what they delivered. And I, you know, the mind boggles. I wonder if it was a ploy to kind of get him here, though. I was thinking about it, you know, everybody obviously was going to say, you cannot have this conversation behind closed doors. You can't. You just can't. So I wonder if it, if it was a way to kind of ensnare him and be like, oh, well, we've agreed to do it behind closed doors and then let everybody kind of like go at Tiani and he would show up. I don't know if I'm giving them too much credit with that. Uh, yeah, and it was, it, it, there wasn't, the bits of it that I saw, there wasn't very many really astute questions it was kind of just a lot like, you know, this this idea of the European Parliament where everybody makes a giant long statement and then says a, a vague question that doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. A three minute statement. And what do you think about that? 
Yeah, and, and what do you think about everything I said? But I thought that his responses were interesting and it really should have been a kind of cementing week because obviously this is when the new data protection regulation that everybody is so up in arms about was coming in. So yeah, it really could have been a, a fantastic moment. But then with all this drama about will they, won't they have them behind closed doors and then selecting certain MEPs and yeah, it just kind of turned into a bit of a farce. I'm here torn apart. If he didn't show up, we would have blamed the European Parliament. If the European Parliament didn't do anything, we would say, ah, but this is the European citizens. We wanted to come. We want him to come here. We have. But what did we change? I mean, what's going to happen? He showed up. The MEPs got. Uh, they got a selfie, Lena. Yeah. Cecilia in the middle Wickstrom, of the chair, like the policy coordinator of the whole Parliament, number four on my list of MEPs that matter. Her big takeaway from this whole thing was a selfie with Zuckerberg, and she spelled his name wrong. Wrong, yeah. Didn't even get that right. <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean, the end result, it was a nice attention, a nice light on the MEPs, I think. A nice light or more like a convenience store light? I think that it was interesting as well because, you know, you had people who were all kind of coming down on him, like even Nigel Farage, who many people would say benefited greatly from the lax data privacy <laughs> within Facebook. Everybody was kind of like hammering him, but not really taking responsibility for, you know, their role in some exactly. of this. You know, people are using these loopholes and maybe Facebook's ignorance of how important oh, it every is. Every single one of those parties will use Facebook for advertising in the 2019 <laughs> European elections. Yeah, exactly. So it was a little bit like, oh, you've created these problems, but, you know, they're using them. And there was none of that. Like, mm -hmm. wh what about their Mm -hmm. But is that part of the problem? I mean, Facebook says it's not a monopoly. It's a very competitive space. We're competing against all these other different messaging apps and platforms and so on. But if you are a campaign professional, I mean, what choice do you have? If you are campaigning, well, you have to be Irish in order to be doing this in the Irish abortion referendum this week. But if you're doing that, if you're campaigning for national election, EU elections next year, and you don't have a Facebook advertising strategy... I mean, it's almost impossible to reach all of your voters. So if that's not a monopoly, well, maybe I haven't used the right competition terms, but it's definitely a lock. Like you're in a difficult situation if mm. you sort of decide I'm not happy with the ethics of Facebook, but you don't have many other places to turn. And you can't ignore it and you cannot ignore this audience and you cannot not use this channel uh, until they create something new, another platform. I mean, they would need to, to use it. And, uh, EU I, Confidential. I, EU Confidential book. I'm going to launch it as a new service. It's going to be a great <laughs> income stream for Politico <laughs> and we're actually just going to do the election here. I think that's yeah. really the correct alternative. Yeah, yeah that's it. Oh, I expected more excitement from you guys. <laughs> okay, we'll end it there. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Thanks for joining us, and please remember to rate, review, or subscribe to us wherever you found us. And if you want to go to politico.eu forward slash registration, you can check the EU Confidential box, and it means you'll get a newsletter and the podcast sent to you every week and invites to any podcast-related events. Podcasting is a team effort, so a big thank you to Andrew Gray and Wei Dong Lin. And of course, Alva and Lena, thanks for coming in. Lovely being here. See ya. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.